Let's uh, turn, just for the sake of a little variety, uh, let's not read Ephesians first. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we're continuing our series on uh, the role of the individual in God's plan of salvation, going through Ephesians. This is the third in a four-part series. And I'd like to start by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Do you know that, I, just another little word about that, not that you care, or, but, but I have to go through a year of speech therapy after I get this voice operation, because they tell me, they've done, they did this ungodly testing where they shove this tube up your throat and up your nose, down your throat, and tell you to sing. And <laughs> you're trying singing with a tube up your throat, like, you know, you're gagging, and they go, he says, sing, yay. But uh, they found out that I, I don't talk right. I don't talk right. I don't use my diaphragm enough, and I talk too high, and I need to talk lower. And it's just God's sort of bizarre sense of humor that he puts me in a career of speaking, and I don't know how to talk right. Do you know I had 12 years of speech therapy already? <laughs> Most people don't find it that tough. You know, it's like, it kind of, it kind of comes natural. Here I am, 37. I'm already a speaking pastor. Now i got to learn how to talk. So I'm going to get a voice like Max Norton over there. That's that, that uh, it's low, slow, and self-control kind of suave voice instead of this ra raspy, going-through-puberty-sounding sort of thing. <laughs> Actually, that's what they discovered I'm going through. I just was too embarrassed to tell you. <laughs> Delayed puberty. Priests also getting pimples. Okay, let's go into the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I'll read verses 19 through 25. <clears throat> Paul says this, It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man, where is the scholar, where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, the world through its own wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of, of what was preached to save those who believe. He admits that it's foolish. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, we preach Christ, or rather our, our preaching is heard as Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I want to talk about the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God, the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of the world. In the light of that, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 9. Actually, it's better to start at verse 7. <clears throat> In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, a little word here. In the Greek, there's no punctuation. Greek doesn't have any punctuation. So you can either put a period there or a comma there. Uh, different translations differ. Uh, the NIV makes it into a sort of a comma 
So that verse 8 connects to verse 7. I want to put in there a period uh, and treat it as a separate verse. It can go either way. So verse 8 would read, He lavished on us all wisdom and understanding when he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The wisdom of God, the foolishness of God. Let's pray. Father, you've told us that you've revealed to us a wisdom that is saving. The wisdom of your will centered in Christ Jesus. But Lord, we're aware that in this world there are many competing philosophies and different competing claims to wisdom. And they would gladly worked their influence on us and in such a way that would water down and compromise, maybe even destroy your word. Father, I pray that you'd use this message as a way of guarding us, keeping us, and helping us to grow in our appreciation for your wisdom that you've revealed, which appears as foolishness to the world. Lord, make your word come alive. You've got to do it. And Lord, if there are those here this morning that have not yet received Jesus Christ as coming from your wisdom, and received him as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, this morning, this morning, would be the time that they would do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. There's three things about this passage I want us to get this morning. Number one is the fact that God has revealed his, his uh, will, or he's lavished on us wisdom, Ephesians 1.8 says. He lavished on us wisdom. Number two is that that wisdom consists in revealing the mystery of his will. And number three is the fact that that will is centered in Christ Jesus. I want to talk about each one of those and do so in such a way that we talk about how that wisdom, which comes from God, confronts what the, what the world would, would, would call wisdom. First of all, what does it mean when the Bible says that God has lavished on us, lavished on believers, wisdom? It doesn't appear to me that... Christians, by and large, tend to be smarter than non-Christians. Have you noticed that? Or that we tend to be more intelligent, that we tend to read more and study more and be a little bit more cultured and have higher IQs. Has anyone noticed that? I haven't noticed that. Certainly we're not more practical if my own experience is any kind of endeavor to think. I, whatever God's wisdom means when he says he lavished it on me, it wasn't wisdom and knowing how to balance checkbooks or fix cars or light bulbs. Um, the wisdom doesn't mean that. What is, what is the wisdom that Christians distinctly have? Well, consider that in the verse it says that the wisdom that we have reveals the mystery of God's will. Think about that. The word mystery in the passage in Ephesians chapter 1-9, mystery means something hidden, something opaque, something you can't see through, something that is concealed or confusing. Mystery is the black box, and you don't know what's in the black box. You can't see through it. It's hidden from you. It's opaque. It's not clear. That's what a mystery is. So the mystery of God's will refers to the opaqueness of God's will, or even whether there is a God and whether he has a will, the unclearness of that to the natural mind. The natural mind can't see straight that reality. God's wisdom, then, well, wisdom, the word wisdom literally means insight. Insight. 
which if you think about it means simply to see into something, to see into something. It's, it's having a sort of x-ray vision, to see through something that is opaque, something that is unclear, something that is hidden, and see literally what is on the in, what is on the inside, insight, seeing on the inside. That's what wisdom is. You might think of it like this. Sometimes, those of us who have teenagers, and teenagers in the audience, we love you, we adore you, but you confuse the daylights out of us. And we'll take responsibility. This is all our fault, but I don't want to turn any teenagers off. But teenagers sometimes, uh, and this isn't news to teenagers, but they sometimes have opaque behavior or mysterious behavior or behavior the reasons for which are somewhat hidden from us. There's a, there's a sort of unexplainable irrationality or unexplainable irritation, irritability. Uh, they're angry and you don't quite know why. They're, they're upset and you don't quite know why. They don't want to be around you. You go downstairs to watch TV with them and they get up and they leave and you don't know why. And then they're happy and you don't know why. They sass back, they have a little bit of rebellion, and you don't know why. It's mysterious. You don't understand it. They don't either, but, but you assume that they do. Now, a foolish parent... An unwise parent would respond just to the behavior and would take the behavior personally and would feel insulted and injured and maybe threatened by the behavior and so would respond in an angry way, in a very judgmental way and come down on that teenager. You don't see past the opaque, confusing behavior. You see the behavior and that's where your vision stops. That's unwise. A wiser parent maybe would try to get on the inside of the teenager as difficult as that may be. But think back on when you were a teenager. Do you remember how that was? Making that tough transition from the security of adolescence to the insecurity of, of adulthood. Everything's going through change. Your, your voice is changing. Uh, you know, you, uh, your body's changing. Your chemicals are changing. Your hormones are exploding. You're getting pimples on your face. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know where you belong. You don't know where you fit in. You don't know, you know what, what you're going to do the rest of your life. And everything's sort of cataclysmic, cataclysmic apocalyptic, and disorientated. It's tough being a teenager. And all the teenagers should say amen. But the, the, the parents remember that. A wise parent does. And so you recall how tough it is, how up and down and roller coasterish it is. And that's wisdom. You get on the inside. And maybe you've got to confront the behavior of the child, or, I shouldn't say child, uh, of the young adult. You have to confront the behavior and maybe even punish. But you... But that wisdom, that insight that you have, breeds some compassion. Because it's tough being a teenager. And so with the judgment, there's a sense of compassion. You understand what they're going through at least a little bit. That is insight. To see into. To have wisdom from God. To have insight from God means that we're not more intelligent and not more studious and don't have bigger degrees than non-Christians, but it means that. We've got some kind of insight into what goes on behind the scenes. The opaqueness of where did life come from? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of things? What is the nature of things? What is our destiny? Questions that are unclear and opaque to the natural mind. The believer who receives it has an insight into it because of God's revelation. And that the Bible calls wisdom. Whether you've got an IQ of 200 or an IQ of 45, you're wise if you understand that we were created by God in the image of God, that the earth was created by God, that it's got a purpose, and the purpose is centered in Christ Jesus. 
And the ultimate destiny is for people to go to heaven. That's a piece of wisdom because it's x-ray vision. You see, this is a black box with all the questions of life. You see something that's on the inside. That's wisdom. That's insight. Two things you got to know about that wisdom. Number one, you didn't achieve it. You didn't earn it. It's not because you were smart. It's not because you studied a lot. It's not because you read a lot of books. God maybe used that to bring you to this insight, but ultimately, this wisdom, Paul says in Ephesians 1.8, is revealed by God. It comes from God. Its origin is God. There's no place in the church for Christians to think that they're somehow specially smart and in on the know. If we understand who God is, that God is, that God has a will for our life and what that will is and how it's centered in Christ, if we know that, it's all because of God's grace. Because we're not for God's grace revealing his will in your life. You could study every book in the world and become the most learned person in the world and learn all the different foreign languages in the world and it wouldn't do you a bit of good. It would still all be opaque. In fact, the more you study, if this revelation isn't present, the more you study, the more confused you get. This comes from God. It's not the result of achieving wisdom. But secondly, not only is this wisdom from God not achieved by human wisdom, but the Bible says that the human wisdom is actually opposed to it. It's like this. Life is a black box with a bunch of questions. What's the meaning of life? Where are we? Why are we? How are we? What constitutes us? What's the nature of energy? What's the metaphysics? You know, all that. You know, what's it all about, Angie? You know, it's all been one big question. It's a black box. Now, here's the black box with all the questions about life. Either the person who knows tells me what's in the black box, and so I have a knowledge based on revelation, or I gotta guess what's in the black box. I gotta make up a theory. I, I gotta come up with a speculation. I gotta think of something, a hypothesis. And if my hypothesis or my theory sounds plausible to you, you might say, well, that's insight. It sounds like you're seeing what's in the box. And so you might call me a wise man. Greg knows what's in the box. His guess is wise. Where there is no revelation, there is speculation. And when that speculation sounds plausible, the world calls that wisdom. But what you got to know this morning is that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 and in many other places that the wisdom of man, the speculations, the theories of humans, while not always being entirely wrong and they might have some truth in them, if that is all you've got, it will lead you astray and it will lead you, in fact, to think that the revelation of God is foolishness. In other words, what God has put into the black box isn't what we would guess. It's not what we would ordinarily think. It's not what we would expect. So when we sit around and speculate and theorize about things, we inevitably, because of the fall, go wrong. If you're going to know what's in the black box, you've got to receive what God has told you. So the wisdom of this world sees the gospel. What the Bible says is in the black box as being foolishness. Not only this, but you got to know this. And this is why this is important. The Apostle Paul tells us in many different places, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, for example, that we need to always be on our guard to protect ourselves against that speculation, against the wisdom of the world. And it's not so much that the wisdom of the world is going to come and bulldoze over our faith and convince us that we're wrong, but rather that the wisdom of the world 
gradually makes inroads into our faith, inroads into our life without our knowing it, until before you realize that you're accepting assumptions and accepting points of view that are utterly incongruous, in contradiction to the Bible, but you haven't even noticed it. So Paul says, always be on your guard about the wisdom of this world and hold fast to what God has revealed. Now, what has God revealed? Ephesians 1.9 basically says two things about what God has revealed to us. And I want to talk about those two things and how it contrasts with the wisdom of the world. Paul says that God's lavished on us wisdom by making known to us, that's the revelation, making known to us the mystery of his will, number one, which he has purposed in Christ Jesus. Number two, God's will centered in Christ Jesus. First of all, let's talk about God's will. God tells us that one of the things that's in the box, the questions of life, why do we exist, why are we here, what's in the box is this. There is a God who's personal, who's loving, and who is intentional, who's got a purpose for the world and a purpose for your life. But that's a revelation from God. If you don't have that revelation, you speculate. And when that speculation sounds plausible, you're considered wise. Nietzsche was considered to be a wise man, one of the greatest philosophers that ever, ever lived, Frederick Nietzsche, end of the last century. And he sang a great song, and thus spoke Tharsustra, that God is dead. God is dead. We have no longer any need of God. We are now self-sufficient. We are going to progress on our own. Or Ludwig Feuerbach, Ludwig Feuerbach, another 19th century philosopher, said that God is simply a projection of our imagination, all of our fears and all of our longings projected onto the screen of heaven, and we call that God. And Sigmund Freud, the great psychiatrist, he said, God is simply a symbol of our longing to become a child again and to have a parent. We never want to grow out of our childhood lives, and so we project onto God the big, the big daddy in heaven, the big bad daddy in heaven, who's going to watch over us. Sigmund Freud is considered to be wise. He's guessing what's on the inside of the box. Bertrand Russell says that the belief in God is an archaic, outmoded thing that probably in a hundred years won't be around anymore. Belief in God is like a belief in Santa Claus. It's wishing for a pie in the sky when you die by and by. And when people finally mature and the human race finally matures, we'll have no longer any need for this silly childhood belief, this silly childhood superstition. We'll put it all behind us and finally accept with gusto and guts the truth that life it's simply what evolves, a fungus that grows on a planet when it cools. And that's what all of us are, fungi. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing fungi. Now, if you ask for concrete evidence of this view or how they can be so certain of this whole view, there's not a lot of easy answers, but that's what's considered wisdom of the world. And then there's the question, where did the world come from? Where did the universe come from? Where did matter come from? And one of the wise views, one of the guesses that's going on today, it's very widespread, and I'm not even saying it's wrong, I'm just saying it's not the whole story. But the physicists tell us that, that all the matter in the universe, billions and billions of light years and all these billions of stars, once upon a time it was all packed into a super, super compact little ball. All the, the super density of gravity was, and they argue about whether it was the size of a softball or maybe the eyes of a golf ball or a professor I had said it was the size of a pinhead. All the matter of the universe was, and then it blew up. Huge explosion, and it's still going on. And, and that's why all the stars are expanding, the galaxies are all expanding in different ways so far as we can know. And that's where everything came from. A pinhead blew up. 
Exploding Pinhead. Great name for a rock band. I was, now there's some questions here, and they're not profound questions, but they're just questions. I was in, a, I was in an astronomy lab at, at the University of Minnesota. And again, I'm not, for all I know, the universe began like that. God could do it any way he wants. But I don't think it's the whole story. This isn't all that goes on. But there was this professor of mine, astronomy professor, who was telling us this theory. And um, he was telling us, he was a real self-proclaimed proud atheist. So he's telling us about this. And I, I wasn't even a believer at this time. Or I kind of was, but I was really a confused believer. I wasn't sure I believed anything. I basically was screwed up. But I asked the question, I go, where did the pinhead come from? And he said, well, the pinhead always was. And then I asked, why did it explode? <laughs> and he goes, internal combustion. And I wasn't going to try to be a smart aleck or anything, but I just asked, well, if the pinhead always was, then the internal com combustion must have always been, so the explosion must have always been. In other words, what took it so long to explode? Why is the universe only 45 billion years old? If, uh, if the pinhead always was, the combustion must have always been there. And if the combustion was there, the explosion must have always been there. So the universe must have always been there. But that couldn't be because they tell us, tell us that the universe is running down. Second law of thermodynamics, where you know, eventually we're going to end up into one humongous kind of black hole sort of thing. Well, we should already be there if the universe... I'm losing you. But there's a lot of... There's <laughs> like, stick to theology, boy. But that's the question. There's, there's no easy answer to that. Nevertheless, that theory is, is considered to be wisdom of the world. It's the best thing going. It explains things. And how do we get here? Well, we all know how we got here. This explosion caused a lot of chemical reactions in, in, in solar systems and, and helium explosions and whatever. And then here was the Earth, and the Earth had the right kind of chemicals, and the lightning bolt strike this preambiotic fluid, and, and, and life began. And, and then there was single-celled life and multi-celled life, and viruses began, and, and little swimmy creatures began. They turned into fish, and the fish turned into amphibians. Amphibians turned into reptiles, or they turned into mammals. Take your pick, and they evolved. The dinosaurs came. They got really big. A meteor or a virus hit the Earth. Killed all the dinosaurs, but evolved went on and finally we got here it's an abbreviated version of the whole thing and I'm not even saying so much about whether that theory is right or wrong but it can't be the whole story how how this how this evolution progress well they say mutation uh, fortunate mutations have you ever observed a fortunate mutation somebody growing a third arm and it helps them survive so now they pass on third armness to their kids we've never observed that but that's literally what you need a mechanism for evolution to occur they've never observed that or even more importantly, if you ask the question, how is it that nature, consciousness nature, personalness nature, nature which lacks reason, lacks morality, lacks personal being, how is it that it could evolve creatures such as us who are conscious, who have reason, who have moral convictions, who have a capacity to love, who, have a, who long for meaning? How is that possible? There's no easy answer to that whole thing. It's very hard to believe to reduce yourself down to fungus or, or complex protoplasm. In our heart of hearts, we believe we're more than that. There's no easy answers there. But nevertheless, this is considered to be wisdom. The belief that we're made in the image of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world. To believe the world was always there, to believe that it started with a big bang, to believe that the whole thing is a matter of time and chance, that's wisdom, that's being smart. But to believe that God created it with a purpose, with an intention, with a design, that's considered to be foolish. 
Or many others today hold a view. This is why, this is really a big piece of wisdom today. Yeah, there's a God, there's got to be a supreme being, but this God is not personal. This God is a supreme force, a supreme force, an energy field, sort of a transcendental plane of consciousness or something like that. And we are all really kind of divine. We've got a spark of the divine inside of us. And, and after enough reincarnations, we'll finally discover that we are actually all God and everything is God. Real huge piece of wisdom going on. And he asked the question, why, if we're God, we got ourselves confused into thinking that we're not God? There's no easy answer. Nevertheless, that's considered to be wisdom. The wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. The wisdom of God is, is foolishness to the world. Christians aren't smarter. We're not more educated. We're not nicer. We're not always even better behaving than people in the world. But to the believers who receive it, there is this piece of wisdom. There is this insight into the black box. There is this freedom from feeling like you need to always speculate and investigate curiosity and to put your hope in zodiacs and horoscopes and little pinheads 45 billion years ago. It's the revelation that there is a God, and this God is personal, and this God is loving, and this God created the world, and this God created human beings in His image, and the reason we have reason is because God has reason, and the reason we have moral convictions is because God has moral convictions, and the reason we are free is because God is free. The reason why we long for meaning is because God is purposeful and created us with a longing for meaning. And for the believer, this makes sense of life. It's the coin that drops in the slot, the, 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 slot, the light bulb that goes on. It gives life a backdrop, a canvas against which your own individual life can be painted, and it begins to make sense. Otherwise, life is, as Albert Camus says, virtually absurd. Francis Kafka, it's without rhyme or reason personal beings in an impersonal universe, and everything we long for comes to frustration. And to the believer, to the believer, this wisdom that comes from God is what makes life meaningful, is what makes life, it transforms our life, what gives life peace, what gives life joy, it's what fits. When you receive it, you try to glove on and it fits. The word that Paul would give us this morning is this. If God is personal and God is moral, then it makes all the sense in the world for you, a personal moral creature, to spend your life developing a relationship with that God. If this gospel is true, then nothing could be more important, more central than developing a relationship with this God before whom you are accountable. Don't let the thinking, the wisdom, the philosophy of the world erode your faith to the point where you would make a relationship with God a footnote to your life, a little incidental piece of your life. Either it's center or it's not what it is supposed to be. Don't let the thinking of the world begin to erode on that. There is a God and He's got a will for your life. Finding that will and expressing it in your life is the single most important thing in your life because that is why you exist, period. The second thing about God's wisdom is that it's centered in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1. God's will is centered in Jesus Christ. If what the gospel says about God sometimes sounds like foolishness to the world, what the gospel says about Jesus Christ is extremely offensive to the world. There's two things, two words in the Christian vocabulary that more than anything else confront the paradigm, the thinking, the fad of this culture in which we live. The other words, sin, and the word Savior. Nothing clashes 
more with the thinking of this world in which we live than those two words. The only objections I've ever gotten of anything I've preached have come when I've preached strongly on sin and strongly on Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And after every sermon where I've done that, I've not every sermon, but many of them, and the ones that I've done it strongly on, if I've received the most objection with, I have people who come up and say things like, you know, we really like this church and the feel of this church, the friendliness of this church, the realness of this church, the passion of this church. We like it, but you sound like some kind of fundamentalist when you start talking about that sin stuff. You just sound all of a sudden like you're, you know, I was really surprised and disappointed to hear you start talking about that. And then, another version goes, when you start talking about Jesus Christ as Savior and, and how we're atoned, this happened just a couple weeks ago, how we're, we're atoned by his blood and we need redemption, we need forgiveness, you sound so fundamentalistic, so narrow as though Christianity were the only true religion and insensitive to other religions and other beliefs. And I guess this just isn't the kind of church for us. I mean, you're just too narrow, too rigid. And they think that they're insulting me, but I'm hearing it all as a compliment. <laughs> because there is nothing more central to the gospel than the two words, sin and Savior. You take away sin, you take away the need for a Savior. You take away Savior, you take away the solution from sin. The two go hand in hand. Take away that, there's nothing left, folks. And so if I tick people off who don't like those two words, I go, yes. <laughs> I try to. I hope they're insulted. But see, the wisdom of this world says this. In a word, it has a lot of different forms, and I know I'm talking simplistically here. But it basically says, you know, human beings, we're basically good. We have an inherently good nature. We're basically positive. If we're just raised right, loved right, and educated right, then we do the right things. And people do bad things because they weren't loved enough. They weren't considered with enough care. I had somebody write me a letter from California. They were mad at my book, Letters from a Skeptic, when I called this one guy who mutilated this little girl and chopped off her arms and legs and finally killed her. I called him a sicko in the book. He wrote me back. This is like the epitome of political correctness. How insensitive to call someone a sicko. Well, if he's not a sicko, what counts for being a sicko? What is your criteria? But he, was, he said, well, look, this person probably couldn't help it, and he was raised wrong. It was probably genetic or whatever. Take away all moral responsibility. Take away all moral convictions. It's all a matter of genes and environment. That's the wisdom of this world. If you ask this little question, how is it that our century, which is supposed to be the most enlightened and most educated century that the world history has ever known, how is it that we have shed more blood than all the other centuries put together this enlightened, wonderful culture of ours? There's no easy answer. If you ask, where's the evidence that people are getting better and better? And where's the evidence that education reforms all criminals? And where's the evidence that just enough love is, it guarantees you having a, a loving person? There is none. There's a whole lot of evidence to the contrary. Nevertheless, this is considered the wisdom of the world. It's a wise theory. You're not really up on things if you don't hold to this kind of view of things. You're not really broad-minded enough. And then there's the view of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God incarnate who died on a tree. Nothing could be stupider from the perspective, the dominant reigning perspective of all culture, than a belief like that. The very idea, the very idea that there's one way of salvation is, is just ludicrous. And the idea that Jesus Christ, that God, the God of this universe, and we know this universe is really big now, don't we? The idea that this God would love humanity and become a human being and die on the cross, such a thing is silly. 
The wisdom of this age says that he was just a man, maybe a nice girl, a wonderful, wise person, perhaps, but just a man. There's a real prominent theory out now. I'm going to try not to get into it here, but, but I'm, I'm writing a book responding to it. It's put out by Dominic Crossan and, and Burton Max. Some of you maybe have read about them in the paper. They're the movers, the shakers, the great scholars of this age, and they have a new theory about Jesus. He was a cynic philosopher. He went around teaching cynic philosophy and just questioning authority and was promoting egalitarian, uh, unequivocal, unconditional unanimity against all forms of hierarchical authority. Don't you love when I talk, Professor Talk? And I love when you talk, Professor Talk. Okay. And then his disciples got carried away and developed all these stories about a miracles, resurrection, son of God stuff. But it's all mythology. The original Jesus was, was a cynic sage. And if he asked the question, very simple question. How is it that his disciples, who in other respects appear to be quite sane, how is it that they thought he did miracles if he never did miracles? How is it that they thought he made divine claims for himself, like I'm the son of God, if he never made divine claims for himself? And how on earth is it possible that these disciples were convinced to the point of risking their lives, losing their lives for the sake of this message, they believed that he rose from the dead? How is it possible that they did that if he didn't rise from the dead? Where did this story come from? Where did the myth come from? They were the ones in a position to know, and they tell us he was the son of God. You come 2,000 years later and you tell me they are wrong. Now, I'm not the smartest man in the world, but who has the greater probability of being right? Nevertheless, this is considered the scholarship, the wisdom, the insight of this world. Jesus Christ was the cynic sage. And Jesus Christ was, of course, one way that people find their inner being, but he wasn't the, the savior of the world. What counts as wisdom in this world is to be broad-minded, tolerant of all views. And here's how you define being broad-minded. Believing this very narrow particular belief that I have, namely the belief that I'm okay, you're okay, no one really knows, everything is right, everything is okay, all religions are the same. Nothing could be more rigid and fundamentalistic than believing that particular doctrine, but they're deceived into thinking that that's being broad-minded. So Jesus and Gandhi are basically the same. Jesus and Muhammad are basically the same. Jesus and, Hari, and Krishna's, or Maharishi, or, or Zoroaster, or, or Confucius, they're basically the same, different ways of getting to God. All roads lead in the same direction. And in the end, we're all going to get wherever we're going, if we're going anywhere. That's what all the, the, the new books on, on the near-death experiences are telling us. You've read some of these? Uh, Betty Eady, is that her name? And, embraced by the light and they're all so full of everyone's going to finally get there because why they believe that all people are basically good and so they basically will wake up from their ignorance and they will all get there and then we'll realize that we're god or something variation like that the bible calls such views foolishness foolishness speculation guesses where do you get this information how do you know that always all roads lead the same direction and how is it if all the great religious leaders from Gandhi to Jesus and Confucius to Buddha, they all disagree with one another, how can they all be right? You ask a simple question like that, and no one's got a real answer. But they're sure that they're right. All roads lead in the same direction. From God's perspective revealed in Scripture. What is wisdom? 
is the knowledge. It's the insight. It's looking into the black box of who Jesus is. And it's seeing, 2 Timothy 3.16, that God was manifested in the flesh. It's seeing, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ. God was in this Jewish carpenter. God was in this Jewish carpenter when he was hanging on the tree. And God was in this Jewish carpenter when he went down in the tomb. And God was in the Jewish carpenter when he rose from the dead. The insight that comes from God sees that. The wisdom, the natural mind thinks it's foolishness, but Paul says this is the wisdom of God and this is the power of God because when you believe, when you believe according to God's word on who Jesus was being the Son of God, the Word of God, the Lamb of God, the life of God, the image of God, and the Savior of all who believe, when you believe that, that's what transforms your life. That's what begins to make sense of things. That's what gives life a reason, a meaning, and a passion. That's what fits the heart's longings, the longing for meaning and the longing for love the longing, the need to feel forgiven. It's not the result of our great thinking, our intelligence, or because we're super smart. It's because you had a heart that would receive what God was telling you about what's in the black box. Wisdom, wisdom from God's perspective. It may look foolish to the world, but wisdom is embracing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and basing every ounce of life that you've got on that one fact. Because if that is true, nothing else really matters in life. Nothing. Wisdom is selling out, abandoning all, and yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ and making him Lord of your life. What the Bible would call foolishness is running away from this God's offer of salvation. What is foolishness is thinking you can mesh Jesus Christ with all the other philosophies of the world. And what is foolishness is thinking that you can be a Christian and have this as a little footnote. Kind of, you know, along with all the other things you might believe and other things you might do and other things you might feel. Yeah, there's this little compartment of your life that is called Jesus. And on a Sunday morning, maybe you think about it. What is wisdom is embracing him as the Lord and Savior of your life and selling out all and embracing him. If you're here this morning and you have never done that, I implore you in Jesus' name to accept the wisdom of God, abandon every other agenda that you might have in your life, and make him Lord of your life. He'll make it beautiful. He'll give you a fulfillment you could never find on your own. That is wisdom. Accept the wisdom of God. This morning as we're dismissed, there'll be some people up here who would love to pray with you. A simple little prayer. There's no... There's not going to be any obligations or anything. We just want you to come to the point of accepting the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Come forward as we're dismissed. For those of you who are here this morning and are believers, I just leave you with this challenge. Do you let the presuppositions, the thinking, the assumptions, the views of this world influence you? Do you find yourself sometimes thinking that the gospel maybe is kind of weird or do you find yourself tempted to remake the gospel according to your own thinking because it just doesn't sound right the way it is i would encourage you to allow the holy spirit to bring conviction into your life to see the areas where you've compromised or watered down the truth of god because you've breathed too much of the pollution of this age be on guard hold fast to god's truth resist that which does not originate from god father in your name we thank you for your wisdom we thank you for your power we thank you for your gospel Lord, we know that it is nothing within ourselves that has brought about this wisdom. There's no room for pride or haughtiness or arrogance. If this humbles us, Lord, because we know that we have nothing more to offer than anyone else in the world. But, Lord, you've revealed it to your called out ones, and we give you the praise and the thanks. 
Lord, there are some here this morning who don't yet know you, or they're not sure. Father, through your spirit, even as I'm talking right now, draw them forward in Jesus' name. Convict their hearts to receive you as Lord and Savior of their life and to become a believer destined for heaven because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.